always bet the milk from the cow, but don't bet the cow. Because if you bet the cow, then there's no more milk. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure, free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name, episode 565, titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practices. Basically, he knows his stuff. And he is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free. And then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely one that being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author Rich Dad, Poor Dad, a whole bunch of others with us today, Frank Zaccanelli. How are you doing, Frank? Doing well, thank you. Nice to have you on the show. And a little bit about Frank. He is the Chief Executive Officer and Managing Partner at Fiamma Partners, which is an investment and development firm. He is the former President, General Manager, and Managing Partner of the Dallas Mavericks, he has invested over $235 million in residential and mixed-use real estate opportunities across the U.S., and he has – it's really interesting. He spearheaded the effort to acquire and redevelop 75 acres of environmentally contaminated land, which now houses the Mavericks, the Dallas Stars, and a whole bunch of concerts. And last thing I'll mention before we get into it, he is currently working on revitalizing a historic shopping center in Dallas, so lots of – real estate related conversation that we're going to be talking about based in Dallas, Texas. With that being said, Frank, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your focus? It's good to be with you in the no fluff zone. I guess this is the no fluff zone. You betcha. I'm happy to be in the no fluff zone with you. I started out in real estate as a real estate broker back in 1980. And I went to work for a guy who's a really famous guy in Dallas and probably around the country. Roger Staubach, he had just gotten out of football, and he knew in his last years in football, he was going to make real estate his career. And I met him playing basketball. I played basketball in college. He played a lot of basketball in the offseason to stay in shape. 
And so we met and hit it off pretty well. And one day he invited me to his house and we played and he asked me, what do you do for a living? And at that time I was in the consumer product industry. I was a marketing guy. I was young, out of school. And I went from there and he said, you know, have you ever thought about getting your real estate license? I said, I thought about it. He said, well, maybe what you should do is you should go do that and then come back and see me. Well, he didn't have to ask twice. <laughs> and so I went to get my license and I went to work for him and had a wonderful five-year career with him. I was uh, probably the 12th or 14th employee when he sold this company. I think he had either 2,500 or 3,000 employees. So I was there very, very early on. And uh, I basically parlayed that into meeting Ross Perot Sr., then Ross Perot Jr., and ultimately went on to a really fun and exciting career with the Perot family for a long period of time before I started all of my own kind of ventures. So I've had a really lucky and blessed career, and I've been around some really good people. Mm-hmm. You've invested over $235 million in residential mixed-use real estate across the U.S. Can you elaborate on... Last, oh, just stop it. That's just in the last three years. Now, we've invested billions through my career. I've been lucky enough, again, to be with some very, very powerful groups that have done a lot of great things. But the 235 has been invested really over the last three years. All right. Let's talk about the last three years. What have you been investing in? Well, actually, the EB-5 program, I don't know if you know what that is, but maybe some of your listeners, it's an immigration program that actually is pay-for-play immigration, where they allow up to 10,000 visas a year through the United States government, the USCIS. And ultimately, what happens is, is that money has to go into projects that create jobs and economic development in the United States. And this all got started for me in the CB5 program in San Francisco back in 2010. And San Francisco was a real hotbed for the Chinese. The Chinese dominate the EB5 program. They're probably 90% of the total program. And one company is probably 60% of the 90%. That's the company that basically I linked up with. But we went to China, and like we would do in the United States on a public offering, you do roadshows, you sit in front of investors, you explain to them what you're doing and the real estate they'd be investing in. And ultimately, all this has to be approved by the United States government. So we did that in 2015 and raised the $235 million of EB-5 funds. And we placed that money into two land development deals in the suburbs of Dallas. I know you're from Fort Worth, so you would know where Westlake, Texas is and Flower Mound, Texas and then a historic hotel in downtown Dallas called the Statler, which is ultimately one of the premier properties in Dallas historically. It was Conrad Hilton's biggest hotel at the time back in the 50s when he opened it. And the building's been vacant for a while. And we use these funds and our expertise to be able to redevelop that project. So those three projects kind of make up Tiama's playlist now. And the $235 million that you were speaking of. Mm. What are some things that we should know about the EB-5 program in terms of pros and cons as a real estate developer when you use it? Well, that's a great question, actually. It's a very arduous, long process, which I think really connects in with the government's involvement. Projects take about a year to a year and three months to get approved. And so 
if you're in the middle of a very active development and you need financing right away, the EB-5 program probably is not the way to go. But if you can plan out your financing and your capital stack and your capital structure, it's pretty cheap money. And ultimately, if you can get through all of the coordinates that you have to get through, which is ultimately you have to have certain job numbers, you have to have certain economic development numbers, has to be a certain tax base, those basic things. If you meet the standard on that and you have the time to be able to really utilize that financing because it doesn't happen overnight, it's a pretty nice way to basically finance your projects. And many big development companies, especially out of New York, have done EB-5 deals on major projects where they've raised on a single project five, six, seven hundred million dollars. So it's good financing if you have the time and you meet the criteria. What is your specific role within those three projects? Well, I raised the capital and I'm the developer. You know, I have a long history of building things from my Hillwood and Rossboro days. And so really the two projects in the suburbs are land development projects where we're actually going to build 14 buildings on the land development projects in the suburbs. At the Statler, that's really brain surgery because you're taking an existing historic building and you're actually having to retrofit it under the laws of the historic tax credit program, which is another great way to raise capital if you meet those standards. And ultimately then you have to do your engineering and your architectural work in conjunction with the fact that you're involved in a historic project and you have to meet all of these basic standards. And so my job is to make sure all that happens. And I've spent a lifetime really working with engineers and architects and the like to be able to really understand all the disciplines that are necessary as you go through these things. So a couple questions on that. On the raising capital front, in the last three years, $235 million, and it's been through the EB-5 program that you have done your projects with that capital. And this is a broad question, so feel free to take it in whichever direction you'd like. How do you raise that amount of capital? Well, again, I think a lot of it has to do with, in the EB-5 program, who are you involved with? If we're involved with the right company that ultimately has 45 offices in China and does this as the main course of their business. They raise 50 to $70 million a month of this money. And so that gives you some idea of how big this company really is and the broadness of that. So I think a lot of that has to do with who you're involved with. I think ultimately your background has a lot to do with it. I'll give you a very interesting thing. Something in your life that you never think is going to be a big deal became a big deal with me going to China. In 1997 or 98, Don Nelson and I, a guy that I brought in as the general manager of the Dallas Mavericks, and then he became the head coach. Nelly and I worked together to bring the first Chinese-born basketball player into the NBA. His name is Wang Zhuzhu, and he's a very famous guy in China. In the United States, not so famous, but he was the precursor to Yao Ming coming over. And so it became a very big deal. We worked with the Chinese government for over a year to basically make all this happen. Well, when I went for the first time and I was getting ready to do this roadshow, someone had recognized my name and recognized me because over in China, when we did this deal, it 
made major news. This was a huge deal. And so they asked me about it, and they asked if we had any photos. Well, by the time that we got to our first couple of meetings, I realized how big of a deal this really was to the Chinese because it was really, again, the groundbreaker to allow Chinese players to come to the United States and play in the NBA. By far of any place I've ever been other than the United States, China is the biggest basketball place where fans just are insane about the NBA more than any other place in the world that I've ever traveled. And so they're really up to speed on exactly what's going on. They watch all the games. They follow all the stats. And so that became a very important thing for me on something that really was not a big deal at the time, but it became a huge deal, and it gave me some notoriety and some credibility that also helped us. When you have conversations with investors, whether it's about these particular projects or something else, how do you approach those conversations What, as far as preparation in, in advance or just knowing what you need to know about the project or maybe something else? And again, I'm leaving it broad to hear kind of what comes top of mind for you. Well, just use China and then we'll bring it back to the United States. But in China, it's really just being very prepared in terms of the numbers and being prepared in terms of the information. There are information freaks there. So they want to know all of the details. And so in China, it's really about preparation. In the United States, it's also about preparation, but then there becomes a scenario where basically you have to make a connection with the people. They have to trust you and they have to believe that you really are knowledgeable. You have the background. They understand that you've done this before. It'd be the same thing that anybody who was going to invest any money in something would want to know. They'd want to know that the people that they're investing with are competent and capable and more importantly, they're honest. And then bringing it back to the U.S., one thing, when did you first go off on your own outside of working at a real estate company? Yeah, that was in 2000 when we sold the team to Mark Cuban, who has been all over the news lately. We sold the team, and I thought that was a really good time for me to exit Hillwood and the Perot family's business. That was the best situation that any real estate person or any business person could ever have. They're at the top of the line, the best all the way around. And uh, I felt that was a good time for me to cash out and to exit and to start doing my own deals. I always had a drive that I wanted to do my own projects. And in 2000, that was a really good time for me to kind of exit, if you will, the corporate world, even though the Pearl family was very entrepreneurial but kind of the bigger real estate companies and go out and start my own companies that have always been boutique companies. I've never had 50 employees. We've always kind of kept it small and on the investment side. And I only want to take on two or three deals at a time because I think you can get yourself overloaded. And when you get yourself overloaded, you have an opportunity not to do as good a job. In 2000, you went out on your own and you take on at most two to three deals at a time. How do you structure those deals with investors? Well, it just depends on what the deal is. I mean, again, if it's equity, if it's debt, a lot of times I just put up my own equity and we went out and raised debt. And the debt side of things, quite frankly, is a little bit easier. The banks are looking for collateral. They're looking for the ability to be able to take a look at what's the loan to value ratios that they're loaning in. 
They want to know that the developer is competent. They want to know that the projects are sound. And so when it's on the debt side, it's easier. When it's on the equity side, there has to be some camaraderie. There has to be control provisions. There has to be, in the event that there's a problem between the partners, there has to be buy-sells and there has to be all kinds of other mechanisms that come into play. So things become a little bit more complicated if it's on the equity side. So it just really depends on what the deal is and what kind of capital you're trying to raise. Thinking of a specific example with the equity side where you brought in equity partners, can you give a specific example for how you structure the equity side? Just so best ever listeners can hear how you had structured an equity deal in the past. So we'll take a project that was a land development project where properties were and uh, buildings were going to be built once the entitlements got done. There was a process that we had to get through on the entitlement side, and that took about two years to get all the entitlements in place and get the city's approval and the state's approval on everything that we needed approvals on. When we brought in equity partners there, it was really based on them being silent money partners because it was up to us to be able to go in and complete the function with the municipalities and with the government agencies to get everything in place. And then it was a matter of actually starting the infrastructure and starting to build some of the buildings. That was all, again, on us as developers. I've had other deals where the equity that you bring in wants to be part of the development team. And if they want to be part of the development team, that becomes a little bit trickier because you can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. So what you have to do is you have to really, really understand exactly who's going to do what, who's going to be responsible for what. Because if you have too many cooks in the kitchen, you have the opportunity to start to run into each other and have some conflict. So it's better on the equity side if the monies and the equity that you're bringing in is more silent than not if you're the master developer. And then on that first example, the land development project where it took two years to get the city and state approval, the equity partners wanted to be silent money partners. What type of structure? I'm talking about preferred return, equity split. Can you get into those details as far as like what type of structure you offer or yeah, you offer sure. in that scenario? A lot of times the money that comes in that's silent wants to be in a preferred position. And let's assume that they put in 80 to 90% of the capital. So if they're in a preferred position, normally what you're doing is you're accruing some interest rate to their capital. And let's just assume that your accrual is 6 to 8% on the equity. And that money's not paid in kind. It's basically over time, it's accrued until the deal has the money to pay them out. And you as the developer, a lot of times will take a development fee and you'll have a current pay on the development fee out of the proceeds that are in the capital stack. Once the entitlements got done and once you start the land development and you actually start selling assets, then normally the way this works is the preferred capital is paid off first and then there's some modicum of split. The splits are never 90-10 when there's preferred capital. Say that then goes after all the preferred money's paid back, and then any of your money that you put in up front, then normally the splits, you say, are 50-50. And then all proceeds from that point are then basically split 
on an agreed upon after capital split. And that those after capital splits are never the pre-capital splits. So ultimately the developer has an opportunity to promote the silent money once their preferred return is paid back and their capital is paid back to get in a better equity position. And that's normally how it works. To give them interest on their money and their money back and then perhaps do a 50-50 split or whatever the project calls for. Correct. Ultimately, though, there's always a promote for the developer Mm -hmm. once the preferred capital is paid off. And as a developer, how do you know what percentage to charge? What's typical? Well, it just depends on what interest rates are and what equity returns are in the marketplace. But I would say that 6 to 8% in a normal market is probably a pretty good target. Now, there are a lot of investment companies that want a higher return. And let's assume that they want in the low teens. Well, then the back end split, if you're going to pay them in the low teens, then the back end then has to be adjusted so that the developer has the benefit of his bargain. So let's assume that I paid in the low teens, okay? That's something that I don't really like doing, but let's assume that was the case. Then we may get 70 or 80% of the back end because the investor got most of their money up front. And then last question on this, and then I want to talk more high level. The developer fee that's paid up front, is that a percentage of the overall project cost, or how do you figure that? It's normally negotiated, but it can be a percentage of the project cost, and ultimately it's paid out every month so that the developer can pay their people and can do all the things that they have to do during this period of time where they're getting the development ready to actually start selling assets. So in the land development world, what you're normally doing is you're either selling parcels of land that are now fully developed from a land development standpoint to other developers, or you're building buildings and then eventually selling those buildings. So the developer fee is really based on kind of the total dollars that are put into the deal, and you get a percentage of that on a monthly basis that ultimately is part of your compensation as a developer. And then just industry standard, what would be that percentage that would be reasonable? And I know it depends on the project, but just generally, what would be that percentage? In the 2 to 3% range is probably industry standard. I've seen it a little lower. I've seen it a little bit higher. Now, this is not to be confused, though, because I don't want to confuse your viewers with actually managing money. There are a lot of firms that go out and raise institutional capital and manage money. That is much lower than 2 to 3%. We're talking about project-specific development fees. And normally in the 2, 3, 4% range, that's right there in terms of what the market would be. You have the connections to invest in, I imagine, any type of real estate, ground-up development, office, retail that currently exists, maybe reposition it, reposition a warehouse into condos, whatever. The perception that, at least my perception of development, is that there's more risk but more reward. And if that perception is the case, and feel free to say, Joe, you're absolutely wrong. If that is the case, then why do you choose to do development instead of something that would appear to have your risk mitigated by working on a project that already exists? I think you hit it in your first statements on the topic is that the returns are much higher if you're in the development business. And I'm not looking for institutional 
returns at 7 to 8%. In the development business, we look for 20-plus returns on projects that we invest our money in and ultimately then build out 20, 25, 30%. So a lot of the Wall Street firms, quite frankly, are very comfortable in that space of 7 to 8%, 10% returns on not taking a lot of risk, buying existing cash flow, buying existing assets. See, that's ultimately the buyer for a lot of the properties that I develop. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, the real niche that I think that my company has is the ability to understand all of the entitlement-related issues, all of the environmental-related issues, all the engineering, all the architectural, and all of the pieces that really are important that ultimately create a development opportunity. So ultimately, that's really where we find that our expertise lies better than just buying existing buildings. So clearly with you being on the development side, you've got to stay in tune with the political climate, not only locally, but nationwide. And especially, I mean, if you're involved in EB-5 programs too, I think that has to continue to be renewed periodically. I'm not too close to it, but I remember reading something about that. And before we jumped on the call and started recording this, I know that one of the topics that was mentioned to me as something that you have some good insight on is what does Donald Trump and the White House mean for real estate investors? And especially now that we have more context about what you're doing, it's clearly very important to you since you're on the development side. And I know that in my notes that were sent to me, it says that you are an independent and you're going to stay away from saying one or the other, but you're purely coming at it from an objective real estate investor standpoint. So what are your thoughts on what does it mean to have Donald Trump in the right house for real estate investors? Well, that's another great question. And I will tell you four or five things about it. I think number one, and you mentioned, I don't come at things in my life or in business from an ideological point of view. I think there's way too much of that in our system. If you turn on the major cable networks or you turn on the major news networks, it seems to me that 80 to 90% of the commentary is all ideologically based. And they're not really giving viewers the opportunity to get information. And so that is not where I'm at. I've never been. I voted for Barack Obama. I voted for Donald Trump. So ultimately, I'm all over the board in terms of exactly where I stand with my politics and where I think the country needs to go. Now, I think that Donald Trump, and I like calling him the Donald, he's the Donald to every real estate guy, right? Ultimately, he's going to become the deregulation president. That's going to be a major piece of what he does. Now, in 2008, we had the worst meltdown. I've been doing this at a pretty high level for 38 years. In 2008, it was the worst financial and real estate meltdown I ever saw. And world markets were melting down. And the whole TARP program that was put into place, I wasn't a gigantic fan of at the time. Ultimately, TARP came in and really stabilized the marketplace. And I think hindsight being 2020, which it always is, I think TARP was probably a pretty good idea. Now, where they individually went in and said, we're going to save one company, 
not going to save another. Probably not the greatest idea. But when Barack Obama came in, he put pretty heavy regulations on the banks and Wall Street and things that they could and could not do. The deregulation president, Donald Trump, is now going to lift those regulations and open the markets up a little bit more. What always happens in life and in business and in politics is that we overcompensate. And I believe with the regulations that went into place in 2008, 9, and 10, I believe we somewhat overcompensated with the banks. Now, Trump is basically signaling that he's going to take some of these regulations off, which is going to open up the money flow from the banks, which I think ultimately is going to be very, very, very important to real estate lending and financing in the United States. The other point that I'd like to make to you is, is that when you really take a look at Trump's policies, they're all very pro-business. Now, again, you can deregulate to a level that doesn't make sense. So I think we have to really watch now and make sure that we don't overcompensate the other way with too much deregulation and not enough coordinating policies that ultimately don't allow for what happened in 2005, 6, and 7 to occur again. So I think it's a real balancing act. But if you take a look at the markets and you take a look at the stock market, as long as Donald Trump can get his agenda through Congress, which still now is still a question mark, if he can get it through Congress, the markets have taken very, very kindly to his policies. And ultimately, I think the markets will continue to improve if he can get his agenda through Congress. What are you doing in your business right now, knowing what you just said, to either prepare or take advantage of what you see coming? Well, ultimately, I think that there's going to be an increase in interest rates, right? I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. We've been in this kind of zero interest rate climate for a long, long time. And inflation has been, for the most part, in check. And so ultimately, as interest rates start to go up, which eventually has to happen, inflation will probably go up a little bit. And ultimately, if you own some really good hard assets, it's probably a great time to be an owner of some good hard assets as inflation may increase the value of those. I think ultimately anybody who's been sitting on a lot of cash for the last 10 to 12 years hasn't seen very good returns. There really hasn't been a real marketplace for cash in the non-real estate, non-oil and gas, non-investing market, just cash in treasury bills or municipal bonds or other things. I remember in my career buying municipal bonds 20 years ago where the yields were 7 8 9% tax-free. And ultimately now those yields are one and a half to two and a half percent. So I think that ultimately if the markets continue to grow and I think there's some level of inflation, probably not a bad time to own hard assets. I hear that. So with your investments in particular, what are you personally doing? We're building hard assets to hold and then eventually sell at the right time. So ultimately this gets back to your question a few minutes ago where you said, why are you in the development business? Well, we're in the development business because the returns are much better than buying institutional grade quality hard assets 
because the returns are two to three times if you can buy the ground assets properly, the land assets properly, and you get the right entitlements, the returns are much higher and ultimately you'll cash flow them until you decide that you want to sell them. The last thing I'd love to talk to you about, because I'm sure we piqued the best ever listeners' curiosity when I mentioned the redevelopment of 75 acres of environmentally contaminated land that now houses the Mavericks, the Stars, and some concerts. Can you tell us a story about that? Yeah, we were looking in 1996. When we bought the Mavericks in May of 1996, Ross Perot Jr. and I knew that all of our economics were going to be tied to our ability to build a new arena. The team had played in Reunion Arena, which was a functional arena that was in downtown Dallas, and they played there since their inception in 1980. But it didn't have the revenue capabilities of some of the newer arenas that were being built, like the United Center in Chicago. That was, in my opinion, the greatest arena to be built at its time in terms of its design, in terms of its maximization of revenues. And so we knew that our economics were largely tied into our ability to build an arena. But you want to talk about a lot of regulation and a lot of politics and a lot of public-private partnership, we went through about a year and a half of that, maybe two years of really identifying how we were going to do this, what the city's participation was going to be. On the west side of downtown along I-35 was probably the least desirable properties, and they had a big power substation. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but they're pretty unsightly. And it was on this piece of property, and it was right along the freeway. And you knew that that was where downtown eventually had to go. So we went in and we started buying up properties. I think we bought up some 31 different parcels that created this 75 acres of land. And we knew that we had an environmental challenge in front of us. If you're in the development business and you are rushed for time, don't win environmental awards because win environmental awards, <laughs> that means that it's taken three times longer than anything that you ever thought. But we won every environmental award that there was. The cleanup, needless to say, was a little bit more significant than what we thought. But ultimately, we were able to get through that, and we were able to take what I considered to be the worst part of downtown and make it now into what's called Victory Park. If you went there today and you saw what was built there and what was being built there, people are living there. They're working there, they're shopping there, they're going to games there. I'm really proud every time that I drive by there that we had the foresight at least to be able to see not what a property was then, but what it could be. And that's the ultimate part of all the development businesses is what can it be? What can you turn it into? But don't ever win environmental awards. That means the project's been delayed. Frank, based on your experience as a real estate investor, what is your best advice ever for other real estate investors? Well, I'll give you a piece of advice that H. Ross Perot gave me as a really young business guy. And I'll never forget the day I walked into his office and he looked at me and he looked at me hard and he said, Zacchinelli, he always called me by my last name. He said, Zacchinelli, forget about the return on your capital. Forget about it. I'm more interested in return of my capital. 
then once I get my capital back, then we'll worry about what the return on my capital is. But he says, I'm worried about return of my capital, not return on my capital. Mm. And I'll never forget that because his message really was, you need to ultimately be very, very careful about how you invest your money. Everybody gets so caught up in what their returns are. And his philosophy was, yes, returns are important. We need to make sure that the returns are there, but we need to make sure that all of our money comes back to us because we don't want to be out there lunging where we're risking our capital. Had another guy tell me another really interesting anecdote. He said, always bet the milk from the cow, but don't bet the cow. Because if you bet the cow, then there's no more milk. If you lose the cow, you're out. And so I think both of those kind of lend itself to a philosophy that be careful as you take your capital or other people's capital. Be careful about the risk that you take on when you invest it. What is one either underwriting approach or just your overall, maybe like I'm looking for more granular, like a tactical thing that you do when you evaluate development deals or potential deals where you make sure that your risk is mitigated so you do have that return of your capital first and foremost? Well, take all your reports and all the market studies and everything that everybody does, and we do the same thing. And then at the end of the day, when it comes down to putting your final numbers together, discount all of that about 20 to 25%. And then if you can discount those numbers, 20, 25, even 30%, if you can discount that and the deal still makes sense, then you probably got something that you should do. So take all your market data, take all the reports that everyone puts out about the office market and the hotel market and the apartment market. And then discount that back, assuming that the market is going to adjust at some point. And if your numbers still make sense from a return standpoint, then you probably have a good deal. And by make sense, does that mean it's safe to assume you'll get your capital back? or that well, capital plus return. Again, the story that I tell you about Ross Perot, it was nothing more than him telling me that, look, the most important part of investing is return of your capital. Once you get your capital back, then your returns are infinite. So get your capital back. Make sure that you're structuring things. Because I know a lot of investment companies that structure things and take a lot more risk on for a higher return. Like, in other words, I could structure certain things that are really 20% deals and make them 30% deals, but my capital takes on a whole modicum of additional risk that is really not necessary. So ultimately, you invest to make money. And I told you that the targeted returns in the development business are 20 to 30%. But ultimately, I think the message is structure things so that you make sure that your capital is not greatly at risk. To say your capital is never at risk, it doesn't work that way. Your capital is always at risk. But take away as much of the risk as you can on the front end. All right, we're going to do a lightning round. You ready for it? Sure. All right, first, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe.
finally, your funding problem is 100% solved at CIX.com. At CIX.com, private lenders compete to fund deals. CIX facilitates over half a billion in loans for real estate investors weekly. Get funded and download your free funding kit at CIX.com. All right, Frank, what's the best ever book you've read? The most interesting book that I've ever read, and it was probably because of the time that I read it, it was years and years ago, was Tuesdays with Maury. That book really hit me. It was done by a guy out of Detroit who was a sports guy, Mitch Albaugh. And Tuesdays with Maury was a great story about him and his college professor and life and business and relationships. And at the time that I read it, that book really stuck with me. So I would say Tuesdays with Maury. Best ever personal growth experience and what did you learn from it? Probably the first brokerage deal that I did that didn't work because you learn a hell of a lot more about life when things don't work. And the first deal ever that I thought was going to the title company was going to close, all the detail wasn't done and it wasn't there and the deal did not close. And so I learned a lot more about that that went on to subsequent deals that did happen. So that was probably the most significant. What's one specific aspect that you learned that you then applied to future deals? Expect the unexpected. I think that ultimately the way that you think a deal is going to go and the way that you chart it out during your due diligence process, rarely does it complete itself in that exact manner. So expect the unexpected. Expect a change in the market. Expect a problem with your partner. Expect a hiccup with the banks. Expect something that ultimately is going to challenge you as you go through these deals. What's the best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I've ever done? Probably the deal that we made the most money on over the long haul. And the one I'm probably the most proudest of is Alliance Airport. You're from Fort Worth, Texas. Yep. And so Alliance Airport is by far the finest industrial airport ever to be built, not only in the United States, but maybe in the world. And we control 22,000 acres of land. Do you want to talk about a public-private partnership? Back in 19, I would say, 86, George Herbert Walker Bush called it the model for public-private partnership. And ultimately, the amount of tax revenue that was generated there, the amount of jobs, and all the pieces of that deal, I'm probably the proudest of. And I was one of the initial four or five guys that really spent three, four or five years of their life getting that not only approved, but built. And so that's probably the most satisfying deal I've ever done. What's the best ever way you like to give back? Well, I think ultimately you give back every day. You give back by the way that you deal with people. I think ultimately the best way to give back, in order to help somebody else, you have to be doing okay yourself, right? So I think that if you could continue to build your career and you could continue to be successful, you could help more people. So ultimately, I think, that's the gauge. The people that unfortunately are struggling in their own careers, in their own life and financially probably can't help as many people as if you were doing much better in your life. So I think that's really the key. What would you say is a mistake you've made on a particular deal that you haven't mentioned already? 2020 vision is always the best. I think that ultimately the biggest thing that I could tell somebody that's out there that's going to listen to this and listening to this is that you have to pick your partners wisely. I think the picking of your partners, 
are probably sometimes more important than the picking of your deals because you can have every kind of problem in a partnership. And ultimately, I think the mistakes that sometimes are made is that not enough work and due diligence goes into underwriting your partners and your lenders. You spend all your time on the deal itself, but I think you need to spend as much time in the underwriting on your partners and your lenders. What are some specific things that you would do during that underwriting or analysis of partners in particular? I just think you have to look into their backgrounds and the stuff that they've done. And you have to make sure that your documentation is clear. It gets back to what we talked about 15, 20 minutes ago about what does a partner really bring to the table? And then when a partner decides that they want to be a co-developer and a co-manager, a co-this, then you have to make sure that the lines of who's going to do what are very well defined because you get yourself in a position that you could butt heads very, very easily over insignificant things that then can cause even more problems. So I would just say, make sure that your documentation is right and make sure that the lines of communication are very clear as you go through these partnership-related issues. And lastly, where can the best ever listeners get in touch with you and or your company? They can go to my website, fiamapartners.com. And ultimately, that's really where somebody can get a hold of me or they can get a hold of me through Burke Communications, which is the company that kind of represents me now and some of the things that I'm doing. Burke Communications is out of New York, and they're a great firm, and I'm working with them to develop some of these other media things that we're doing. Outstanding. Well, Frank, really grateful that we jumped on a call and had our conversation. I mean, we talked about a lot of different stuff from the EB-5 program, raising money overseas to very granular. I love how you got specific on developer fees. What's the market do? What's reasonable? What have you seen? As well as getting into some case studies that you've done from Alliance Airport to the land development project where the Dallas Mavericks currently play to the mistakes you've made along the way and the advice that you received when you were getting started. Forget about your return on your capital. I'm more interested in the return of my capital. A capitalized of because I think that's where the emphasis goes. And then also always bet the milk from the cow, but never the cow. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, Frank, and we'll talk to you soon. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Finally, your funding problem is 100% solved at CIX.com. At CIX.com, private lenders compete to fund deals. CIX facilitates over half a billion in loans for real estate investors weekly. Get funded and download your free funding kit at CIX.com.